Hello, welcome. This is podcast number I don't remember. I don't know. Maybe like seven. Yeah. So this is Who Judy. Knows? I'm Jason. And we have a special guest today. Just a special treat for all of you. Uh, Josh. Hi. We just finished watching Interview with the Vampire. Yes. It a was movie. So good. It was so good, right? Uh, Interview with the Vampire, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a movie about two undead queens and their <laughs> custody battle. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the whole movie, really. Incredibly homoerotic. And so, so amazing. bit of background, Judy and I have both separately grown up on this movie. Yes, I've seen it. I think I saw it for the first time. I wasn't allowed to go see it in theaters, but I was allowed to rent it when it came out. So mm. I think I saw it when I was around nine or ten years old. I think I saw it on television in like 1999 or something. And ever since then, I was hooked. I got really big into the books. I read Interview with the Vampire. I read Vampire Lestat four times in high school. Four times. Nobody liked me. I was a loser. Um, but this is this is you the had Lestat though. This is the extent <laughs> to I had him. That's all I needed. You had him. That was the extent to which I loved these. And so you were a big fan of the books too. I read the books up until Memnock the Devil, which is mm. the fifth book. In the yeah. Vampire Chronicles. I can't keep track of this. Um, yeah, I was a really big fan of the books um, when I was younger too. Like I, I watched Interview with the Vampire first, and then I read the book when I was probably thirteen or so. I was I, I love the movie even more after that because I think it's one of the best book to movie adaptations ever. Hmm. Very faithful. And Josh, you had never even heard of Interview with the Vampire. Well, I had heard of it. I think heard of it. In terms of my exposure to vampire movies, I think I watched one of the Twilight movies once. Oh my god. Yeah, okay. okay. Well, That's neither, a great I think, baseline. <laughs> I think ni- neither of us have actually seen or read anything of Twilight. I have seen two of the Twilight my movies. My god. Actually, I've seen the first one, and I've seen one of the others. I don't remember which one it mm. is, but I don't think it was the second one because I didn't really know what was going on. So I might I might have skipped a, a few. The like, only... My understanding of vampires is that they're meant to sparkle in the sun. Oh, oh my God. Right, right. Please leave. Yeah, wait. I know we invited you to have this podcast with us, but get out. Yeah, so the reason we wanted Josh really was A, because he'd never seen this movie before. He thinks vampires sparkle, and he is a medical professional, so. Yes. You're actually a doctor. You're a trained doctor. Trained doctor. I am. So. and are almost not real doctors. Yes. So that's totally different. And I knew that he was destined to be podcasting with us when he pronounced Louis's name as Lewis while, Lewis. while reading the IMDB. And Judy and I both looked up and said, it's Louis. It's Louis, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're, we're just going to probably ask Josh a lot of uh, medical-related questions. Oh, uh, yes. That's, yeah, that's like, your only reason that, for that's being That's your only here. purpose. Like, I want to know everything no, that well, you think did not make sense in this movie. Well, so that's a, that's a good that's a good point to start with, maybe. Well, what, we can talk about the vampire lore. Well, he has mm-hmm. some some points. I think he he raised that he would like to talk about, but but medically speaking, how does it hold up? Your medical so, professional opinion. <laughs> I think my, the first thing I noticed was that I I I don't think rats have quite as much blood as the, as it was made <laughs> to seem in the movie. Hmm. Um, Dan from, Winston, you fucked up. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> from all of my friends who have done medical research on on rats, it's 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 fairly hard to get a decent amount of blood from them, let alone a whole wine glass full of it. So that was, that I, I guess, my first critique. <laughs> I'm, I'm also not sure that plague made it to North America in the 1800s. I may be wrong on that, but that, se- that seemed egregious. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, maybe it wasn't specifically, like, they never say the Black Death. It didn't seem movie. like a bubonic plague. Yeah. It just it seemed like, like the, yeah, her else. mother had, like, these boils on her but skin. But they weren't bubos. They were just, you know... I was going to bring up 
um, vampire lore simply because you were saying, Josh, that, you know, your experience with vampires <laughs> might just be Twilight. And those are very different vampires. I would say that they aren't really vampires at all. <laughs> they drink blood, but that's about it. It's interesting that in the Anne Rice universe, there's some specific things that vampires can or can't do. Like, we're never really sure what vampires have what powers, and it seems to depend on their age. Uh, the vampires all seem to have reflections. The sunlight thing definitely kills them. That's kind of consistent across the board. But I noticed something else. The vampires in this can breathe. They Louis almost gets suffocated in the coffin, and he collapses when, uh, when he sets fire to his house. And I want to bring that up because, like, I, I know that in the, in, like, the Buffy universe, the vampires are, like, they, they pretty much mention it over and over again. The vampires, like, don't have to breathe. Just point of clarification. Josh, do you know what the Buffy universe is? Do you know what the Buffy universe is? Yes, I did watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, with so you have some other experience with, with vampires. my sister, who is a huge Buffy fan. Excellent. Okay. okay. So, so the question is, then, what do you make of the biology of these vampires. Yeah, like, not having that much experience with other vampire lore, like, what did you think in terms of, like, the rules of this universe when it comes to vampires? The rules of this universe when it comes to vampires? Well, I mean, I guess the biological imperative for them is to drink blood to sort of sustain their nutritional needs, but there's very little about what happens when they don't drink blood. I mean, that's sort of at the end when Lestat is been sitting in that house for several hundred years you see that he's weakened but like yeah i mean when when humans don't eat they die but that's not never sort of the inference for these vampires they just kind of become a diminished version of themselves malnutrition is malnutrition yeah mm-hmm. but you know like going for several hundred years without you know proper nutrition would seem a little off um, but but i mean we're we're extrapolating here um, it's true. The, the movie doesn't ever make it totally clear, like, what happens when they don't drink blood. Like, mm-hmm. you would assume that they waste away and die. Yeah. But at the same time, Lestat is somehow able to wrestle an alligator underwater yep. so, and drink while, the alligator's while, blood while, while tied, while tied up. up. Yeah. And he's Houdini, a vampire. In some ways, it, it may be more of an addiction rather than a nutritional requirement. That's mm. sort of how it more seems. Um, like, 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 when they're... Uh, when when Louis first becomes a vampire, he uh, he feasts on rats, and it, 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 it's it, like all of the sort of uh, the classic addiction model, where you know they have these cravings satisfied, and then they um, sort of get stronger with time. And uh, the rats are his entry drug for when he like um, goes to humans later on. That would seem sort of a more fitting metaphor for what the vampires are doing than rather mm. than a strict nutritional requirement i'm I'm interested to hear your your multiple readings of this because i know that while you were watching it you were saying hmm that's really interesting and i w- was like oh what do you mean that's really interesting particularly well, towards the beginning of the movie there's a lot of bits that you were really interested in well i think it's very interesting that that uh Anne rice makes uh louis a plantation owner in the american south i mean mm. maybe it's a very marxist reading of this film but the uh that he and lestat are the the, the sort of powerful overlords and achieve their sustenance by draining the lifeblood of others. It's, of their own slaves. Of, of their own slaves. So it's, it's, it's really this metaphor of economic power. Um, well, that's and, the entire vampire mythos. Yeah. Like, psychologically, it's all about, like, capitalism and yeah. draining the yeah. 
the the ninety nine percent and like yeah. yeah and so like the lifeblood the story seemed to me like the existential angst of a billionaire heir who has some, who has some self awareness and you know it becomes filled with guilt over the fact that that his existence is predicated upon the suffering of others yeah that's interesting that you mentioned the existential angst of the billionaire or or of the you know one percent upper class because the the movie the cycles of the depression eras that louis goes through seem to be 1791 1891 and like 1994 when the movie is set like mm-hmm. it's like every, like every hundred years he turns 100. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah every every time he turns 100 he goes through a new phase of this kind of ennui that that mm-hmm. inflicts the sort of overall narrative mm-hmm. and becomes this thing of like what to what what's to become of me what am i to be what should i be what mm-hmm. could i be and, yeah. and how can I exploit others or not exploit others in order to achieve this? Well, and he seems to be like, it seems like in the movie, it's implied that he's the only vampire who's really questioned his existence yeah. in this way. But, mm-hmm. of course, if you read the Vampire Lestat, which, Josh, we will let you know mm-hmm. now, it's a book that takes place directly after this book where Lestat, who is alive again, finds a published copy of Interview with the Vampire and reads Louis' entire story and is all like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I never acted like this. Like, Louis was just, like, mad and moody and emo and whatever. And then he takes us back to when he was born, um, or rather, his human life, and then he talks about his vampire life. And you kind of start to understand why the 70 years he spent with Louis, he was such a dick. Mm-hmm. Because he had kind of already lived through his own existential crisis yeah. and realized that, like, there was nothing left for him to do but just live a life of hedonism, mm-hmm. um, which he then changes his mind about later also. So he's mm-hmm. like a much, he's a much more complex character than this movie implies. Like he's not just this pure evil. He's actually like more self-aware and more contemplative mm-hmm. than, than we think. And I think his, in, his origin story is really important. And I wish they had included in this movie because I think that just even a line or two would have really un- made this character more relatable because what happens is i think it's magnus Magnus, is his his creator magnus turns him into a vampire against his will doesn't even tell him what he's doing and then magnus commits suicide yeah so he's just like i turned you into a vampire i'm not even going to tell you that you're a vampire and then i'm gonna blow myself up and so lestat is just like he's just been turned into a vampire so it's the same sort of like trauma that louis went Mm -hmm. through and as soon as he's become a vampire, Magnus is like, okay, bye, and like, kills himself. With yeah, like, and Louis, uh, sorry, Lestat yeah. is just like, oh my god, what do I do now? Like, what's to become of me? Yeah, Lestat has kind of a really tragic beginning. This uh, rich nobleman from mm. France who, uh, you know, his father wants him to, like, take over the land and everything. And he's all like, but I want to join the theater. And, like, I love plays and I love drama. And he's got this best friend slash lover mm. who plays the violin. And they run away together to the circus so that they can, like, be free and in love. And they're having the best time ever. And then Lestat gets kidnapped by Magnus, this vampire, who's just like, I'm into you. <laughs> I'm going to make you my boy toy. But then right after, he commits suicide because he actually can't handle vampirism in general. And, like, yeah, Lestat... He thinks he he tells Louis that there's no purpose to anything and that everything is empty because he never mm-hmm. figured out the purpose of why he was made mm-hmm. and but nobody that, told him anything. That really does add to the sort of the 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 very Marxist reading of all of this because why would uh, why would Lestat have to also be from a wealthy family? Like why couldn't either of them be like mm. you know blacksmiths in the 1700s? You know, of course they're from this very wealthy class, which leads them into sort of this. 
um, this, this powerful other being class. Part of me um, wonders if, if she's relying on, relying on the Bram Stoker um, Marxist interpretation mm-hmm. of the vampire, which well, is probably the, yeah, the, yeah the sort of landed gentry that uh, I guess you wouldn't call them landed gentry, but the the land owning gentry class who basically just live off the blood and the labor of their of their countrymen, and so like with with Dracula, he doesn't actually produce him. He doesn't actually do anything. He just sort of just sucks the blood out of he just hangs out. out of his out of his countrymen. <laughs> and like in the Bram Stoker novel, he just has piles and piles of coins that he just keeps in his basement. Yeah. And so the the idea is that he just collects dead capital. And so vampires, by by their very nature, work on dead capital. They work or, on dead capital, or by converting capital into death. Yeah, they need to continue to exist and pay for shelter mostly mm-hmm. but they don't need to really pay for their they don't food eat. yeah and money kind of becomes a little bit meaningless to them because they can just kill more people and take their money yeah so and and they can't really like it i've never really seen any vampire fiction explore like a vampire in trouble with the law <laughs> like in terms of well it wouldn't exist it wouldn't like, happen they would just be really like happen. okay i'm just gonna kill the police officer who's investigating well mm-hmm. and and the show True Blood actually does try to bring us into like a more. Oh my god! Speaking <laughs> of vampiric right activity, our two cats are just having like quite the tussle. They're having right a turf war. It's really, really funny. So that oh if god, you've been yeah. weird wondering what that background noise is, yeah, the background the is the cats, and we can't control them. They're just like being crazy. Um, but yeah, I was gonna say I think in True Blood, which was a show I really enjoyed, but then started to hate after a while. They are one of few shows that actually explore, like, how vampires have to sort of concede to the legal system because Mm. they're outed as vampires in the universe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, either way, in this movie, it just seems like it's totally fine to set fire to everyone's house (laughs) and kill all the slaves and just kill people all the time and there's never a problem. When in doubt. (laughs) Set fire to someone's house. It's a thing that Louis and Lestat both do a lot of. They're both very into setting fires. Every location Louis goes to, by the end of it, it became a trope that he would set fire to. He would set fire to friggin' everything. Invariably. He would just be like, well, you know, I actually quite enjoyed this location, but it's my sort of... But now it's time to leave, so I gotta set it on fire. He doesn't, like, try to sell his house. He doesn't, like, rent it to anyone. Nope. He just torches it. Yep. And then burns the theater down, because... Yes. Okay, let's talk about the Click theater. Bell song. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about the theater because the theater is definitely present in the book. You learn way more about the theater in the Vampire Lestat. What did we think of like this theater of vampires that people like come and you know entertain themselves by watching fake dramatizations? Well, they're real dramatizations. But it's like the real fake. Housewives or Orange County. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I keep coming back to the the economic trope. Yeah. Like, but it, but it's true, yeah. like you know, like you you wonder whether it's all real, and turns out it is. Well, yeah. <laughs> Claudia, you know, the Kirsten Dunst character, points out herself how avant garde it is. Yeah, and it's it's really just sort of very meta. Yeah, and and it kind of points to this artifice that underpins, you know, Hollywood itself. That everything is just kind of make believe. There is some sort of core content that is itself real. Yeah. Yeah, because people are paying to come be entertained by vampires that are pretending to be human playing vampires. That's totally something that people want to see, even though everybody who leaves the theater that first time looks really upset. Yeah. In the books, they're not upset. No, in, in, the, books, in the books, they're, they're into it. They're, they're very entertained, and they've been, they make it quite clear that the, the theater has been operating for very many years, 
with this business model of, yeah. and then I think it eventually, or it is the birth of Grand Guignol in Paris, this this theater. Oh, I'm not. I don't quote me on that, but I I, I just I or maybe I just conflated the two. But it it did seem to be that Anne Rice was kind of tapping into this desire and lust for death and bloodshed and carnage in the universe. There's so many amazing sets in this movie. Yeah, it was you, it was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, for, like for, for best art design. direction and yeah, art, yeah. It um, I kept getting the sense I was just like, look at all these massive sets. It's just something yeah. that I've noticed way more after watching movies with you, actually. Oh, like good. just well, how since much watching Alien, where I was pointing out design. every set to you. Actually, I'm pretty sure that I first started noticing sets more after we watched Cutthroat Island because That's you kept right. talking about how much money all the sets. Okay, cost. if you guys haven't seen this is a segue, but or not segue, diversion. If you haven't seen Cutthroat Island yet, Watch they spent a hundred million dollars on this movie. It's every penny is up on the screen. It was a miserable failure yeah, of a movie. It, it a made back a, it made back 11 million dollars on a 100 million dollar budget, but it looks like 100 million dollars. Also, it's extremely entertaining. It's, it's a, great. It's great. It's great. It's bring great. bring some friends over, have some beers, watch this movie. Anyways, back <laughs> to What's it about? A pirate we'll we'll a pirate it. princess. It's is <laughs> sort uh, of Pirates of the Caribbean with uh, you know Women first. Well, yeah, it, it oh, is yeah. like almost the storyline of Pirates of the Caribbean. I actually prefer it because it doesn't have the like, supernatural angle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great movie. But it's quality. But actually, I think Pirates, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Cutthroat Island came out a year later. A year 95, after what? So it came a year out. Oh, after this. After Interview with the Vampire. So oh, okay. I just feel like the, the mid-90s were the time where sets just started getting really opulent. Well, in this movie, like, you can tell that there's green screen, like, a bunch of times, but, like. Yeah. Well, um, we were also watching the Blu-ray, so it's a little bit more obvious. Yeah, you can sometimes tell, but it's like they just put so much effort into like the costume design. Yeah, and um, just the shots, and it's just it's so beautiful. It's just a very beautiful movie. Yes, whereas Harry Except Potter, for Brad Pitt's like gross overacting. Uh, what Ooh. do you mean? Let's... What do you mean gross overacting? He's really moody. Well, let's... so overall. What were you? What were you saying with the so? Let's let's talk about the performances, uh, and particularly the casting of these vampires. Yes, because uh, I uh, I know that you, Judy, have some points to I raise. Have some thoughts this. on the casting of everyone. Yeah. So yeah. talk about let's let's start from from the top. Let's start with Louis. Okay. So Brad Pitt for me was perfect in this because mm. like he just really matched how I pictured Louis in the books. He's very very moody. He's very emo. Um, but not in an annoying way, like not like not like the guy in Twilight. Like he's not that level of emo. Shovel face. Yeah, like he's not like oh, I have to go to high school again. <laughs> <laughs> like no, like Brad Pitt is like moody for all the right reasons. He yes. like wants to die, and then he does, and then he's like oh, but life means something. I'm so confused. Like he literally looks. <laughs> if upset only I wasn't so beautiful, this would be an easier choice. Yeah, he looks. <laughs> Upset and confused all the time, and I, I just love, I, I, I loved Brad Pitt in this. Um, okay, what, what did you think? Yeah, of Brad you think Pitt? he's overacting? Well, it's just like it's just so much. But, 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 Josh, what could the damned make, really makes, have to say to the damned? He makes no progress over two hundred years. Oh, yeah. I think he does. Well, that's so. That's why at the end of it, it's so funny when Tom Cruise shows up and he's like, "My God, I've been having to listen to this for two centuries." <laughs> It never changes. Yeah. Well, I think he did grow a little bit, actually. Uh-huh. He, he made, grows. He had some realizations. He grows to the point of absolute death, where he's just like, I, I can't be moody anymore because I can't feel. Yeah. Well, he just kind of loses his innocence, 
and he realizes that like every vampire is a narcissistic asshole and he really yeah. doesn't have like some yeah. massive you know secret or you know uh, uh, the purpose of life yeah. question answered like he's never going to get that so i think that might actually be for me was kind of one of the annoying maybe not failures, but one of the annoyances of this movie is that it's a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me loves that, that it doesn't it doesn't cater to your, like, oh, the the, the hero grows by the end of this journey and, and becomes a better version of himself. No, he, he becomes a worse version of himself, um, or, or a better version of his vampire self, but a worse version of his human self because there's no humanity left in him. I think him. that he kind of just, like, in the end... Is at peace, but with mm-hmm. the fact that he will never be at peace. Yeah. Like, he kind of doesn't feel and, as anxious towards the end at all. And narratively, I think it kind of falls apart because it doesn't actually answer all these questions of origins that mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. I feel like they were leaving for a sequel. Because in the books, she does address all these questions oh, that yeah. Lily has. And in the movie, it just becomes this thing of, like, the closest we ever get to the source is Armand, who is nowhere near the source. No, he's not at all. And, so, and, it's, and it's funny because, like, watching this movie now and remembering all the books that come after, and Armand's all like, I'm 400, I'm the oldest. I'm like, you're not even close to the oldest. Yeah. Like, and, and so... Yeah. How old is the oldest? Well, I'm pretty sure that the oldest living right. vampire is Marius. But the Queen of the Damned, which is the follow-up book after a Vampire right. of Death. Right, she's the source. She's the source. So in the books... She book, was the first vampire she was, ever. And when you yeah. find out how she's they like became... So there's a whole... Gets brought back to life. But Marius is like a thousand years old yeah. or something. So they were actually in talks to make a Vampire Lestat movie... Which I'm so with, sad never ...with happened. Tom Cruise um, after this as a sequel. So I while they were making this one... So there's a lot of plot threads or behind the scenes uh, mythology that I felt like they were taking out of this movie to put into yeah. the inevitable sequel that never Yeah, became. this movie does a great job of giving you little snippets yeah. of these things so that you want to learn more later. But as a standalone movie, I just feel like it, it was really frustrating. It's still frustrating to watch. Um, but in terms of Lestat, moving on down the line of characters, mm-hmm. Lestat, what do we think of Lestat? Okay, so I think Lestat, Tom Cruise was perfect as Lestat in this movie. Interesting. I've always thought he was amazing. Um, because Lestat is very flamboyant, hmm. and he's got, like, the crazy eyes. And he also, you can tell, because, like, I remember his appreciation for the theater, and he genuinely did have, like, human emotions at one point. He's He emotes so much in this movie. Like, you, it's, it's he's not blank. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's not wooden... He, you can tell that he's so frustrated, but he feels so many things. And mostly he's just so frustrated and angry that he made a vampire who he thought was going to be a great companion who mm-hmm. ends up being the biggest killjoy in the entire universe. <laughs> Senor Buzz Killing Dunn. Yeah, like, so Tom Cruise is fantastic in this. And then, I mean, it's really hard to even talk about Lestat without talking about the other Lestat. The Stuart Townsend? Stuart Townsend. Who I also think was great, oh, but only out. because no, I actually think he was great. So Stuart Townsend played the vampire Lestat in the Queen of the Damned film mm-hmm. from like two thousand two or something. Yeah, and basically what happens in that movie is after this period of Interview with the Vampire, after he finds the book and reads it and is all mad about how like Louis lied about everything, he then gets really upset and I think like I don't remember if he gets, gets upset and joins something. a goth rock group. No, first he like as one does. First he literally like goes underground to sleep for a little while because he's just like upset about everything. <laughs> I am so upset I could just fall asleep. <laughs> I'm just going to sleep for like twenty or thirty years, and then he wakes up and it's like two thousand and two or two thousand five, and he's yeah. like, wait a second, 
now vampires are in vogue. I can like trick everyone into believing that I'm like a vampire rock musician and everyone will love me. He's yeah. just obsessed with like being adored by fans and he yeah. becomes a rock musician. So either way, Stuart Townsend does a good job playing that role. Stuart Townsend playing a different type of Lestat. Does a good job of playing Lestat if Lestat was a whiny punk Within ass. a boy band, yeah. <laughs> punk rock goth musician. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah, and point. he definitely and and when you watch if you watch Queen of the Dam by itself you don't get a sense of how who Lestat really is because Stuart Townsend yeah. like looks like he's a baby too. So he just, yeah. you don't really see like in Tom Cruise, you don't really see hundreds of years of history in his eyes or in his acting. No. You just see like, I'm a boy band. <laughs> I'm in a boy what, band. Like what did, what did you make of was Tom? What, what does it feel like watching this movie, knowing who Tom Cruise is and seeing Tom Cruise in this role? By this point, I think, both Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are pretty huge movie stars, and to have both of them be together in a very homoerotic movie <laughs> is is kind of bizarre for the the hmm. the mid nineties. You know, it's like that that both of them would have would would have agreed to do this. I think is is interesting. I think it's very brave of both of them. Yeah, if you can believe it, the homoerotic subtext of this movie. Not many people watching it for the first time. Certainly not the reviewers caught on. Oh come Which is, on! I'm not so kidding. The review, the, top, the reviews though. of this movie, though, if you read them, they they only if they do, you know, catch it. It's only as a sort of hint that maybe there's some sort of subtext going on. No one was really, from what I can read from contemporary reviews, no one was really saying like, wow, it's just a bunch of bitchy queens going through life trying to figure out how to make their marriage work. That's yeah. the movie. That is the movie. But, but I like feel like people... But like a companion people... is such a, like a, yeah. a, a thin euphemism for yeah. life partner or yeah. gay lover. Yeah, and I feel like because in this movie, they don't directly have sex because the vampires in Anne Rice's universe don't have functioning genitals. Which is the way they the way That's they That's the way get she's a, explained away yeah. all of the gay relationships because not it's being not gay because they can't have sex yeah. because you know, you know, homosexuality is related specifically to your sexual capacity. Yes, and for her she does not consider them gay vampires even just That's right. because literally they can't have sex and it's only when Lestat swaps bodies with a human <laughs> Tale of the Body in Thief in the fourth book The Tale of the Body Thief where he swaps bodies with a human that he discovers, rediscovers his penis yes. and first realizes that he can pee and then realizes that he can fuck people. <laughs> <laughs> and ejaculate. There's, a, there's two pages on his first ejaculation in oh over two God. centuries. This, yeah, it's a really, I, I, really ridiculous book. I'm all for... Who is this Anne Rice? <laughs> she's, the one, Anne Rice? she's the one who wrote the trilogy about Jesus, if okay. you can believe it. Not only did Anne Rice move on to... Uh, a like fictional dramatization of Jesus's life. She also wrote three extremely steamy erotic novels about Sleeping Beauty under a pen name in the early 90s or maybe the late 80s. And she was just like, I'm gonna write this and no one will know it's me. <laughs> Everybody fucking did. I feel like she also wrote a series of books about witches. I feel like um, I just do not and, understand and, this woman. And the, the well, the witch series eventually uh, was tapped into the vampire series. Was it? Yeah, there's a book I that came, connected. Eventually, there's a book that comes out that connects the two. Right. I well, think it's called. I, know... I think it's called the Witching Hour, actually. But don't quote me on that. I, I she's written so many books, you cannot keep up. They're yeah. so long. They're, she they're writes. Long. She overwrites more than Stephen King does. <laughs> 
but I, but I will say to go on record to defend Anne Rice, Vampire Lestat is one of my favorite books of all time. It is. A, it is it remains one of my favorite of books of all time. I'm not kidding. It remains. It's, it's it's so lush. It's so sumptuous. It's so flamboyant and over the top. It's, it's so, so well crafted. It's well written. It's actually well written. It's I very think. flowery. It's I very mean, flowery, it's but style, but it's like... poetically flowery. I I I don't read it. I haven't read it in, in some time, but I read it enough times to remember that I don't read it and roll my eyes in the same way that some of the later Anne Rice books, I read them and I roll my eyes at, at how long it goes on for certain yeah. descriptions. Like Tale of the Body Thief, I couldn't get through it. Yeah. Tale of the Body Thief is not a good book, and neither are the ones that come after it, I don't think. Except then there was this weird resurgence where she decided to explore the life of Marius and also Armand way later. So she read, she wrote like Blood Canticle and Blood and Gold mm. and the Vampire Armand and the Vampire Vittorio or like there was like a I million. did read that one. That was you read that one. Yeah, I didn't even get oh, that. But far. that one was like a pointless novel. It, I yeah. read it. It's two hundred pages and it's, it it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't add anything. It's just like I, I don't even know why it exists. Yeah, I don't know. She's just trying to expand the universe with as many people but as possible. Speaking of Armand. Let's talk about Armand. Let's talk about let's talk about every single time Antonio was on screen, Josh, and you laughed. Well, it was just like when they when they first met each other and they were just like waving their long hair at one another. <laughs> I was like I just couldn't. It was, no, I will outflip you. <laughs> it was like it was like it was too much. <laughs> his his outfits are too much. What, what did you call it? It was like the War of the Hair Flips or something. It's, yeah, it's something like that. He's he's very yeah he's very very Spanish. Like he's just so like yeah. I thought Armand was a great... I, I'm sorry, I thought Antonio Banderas was a great choice for Armand in the movie. Well, I... Okay, so I think that Armand worked very well in the movie, but... And I didn't know it at the time, obviously, when the movie came out, but I was shocked to learn later on that Armand is actually, like, a 16-year-old boy. That's right. <laughs> like, in the actual books. He's described as, like, a Botticelli sculpture. Yeah, yeah. And that's why all the vampires are so obsessed with him and why mm -hmm. he gets turned in the first place. Oh, yeah. Because, like, his beauty is just too much. Oh, yeah. And it, like, needs to live forever. So it really is weird that they cast, like, someone, like, in their mid-40s. But um, I guess, like... Reading, but reading the interview with the vampire book, there is pretty much no reference to what Armand looks like. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's why they kind of just thought we'll we'll cast whoever can f sort of fit the bill and like set the mood that we want. And like they didn't really think about like you don't know that Armand is that young until much later. Yeah, I think that that the filmmakers probably just watched a lot of Almodovar films and were like, mm. wow, this guy's kind of weird and kinky. Let's put him in a vampire movie. Yeah, let's have him be the other man. You know, tie me up, <laughs> tie me down, Armand. Why don't you? Yeah, Armand is, Armand is pretty great. I, I like the movie kind of puts little things in because it's kind of ripe for a sequel. Like Armand does talk about Lestat a little bit in this movie, and when I was watching this when I was young, I was just like, oh my god, they know each other, that's amazing! Mm -hmm. And then you find out in the books that they actually have known each other for a very long time. And yeah. they have a really weird history. Well, there. So the Armand's dialogue is the most interesting dialogue in the movie, I think, because mm -hmm. it, it, it does do the world-building establishing mm -hmm. of... like. So if this had been a trilogy, which is what it was intended to be when they were making it, they just ran out of money, this would have been really great bridging... To the next movie because there's so many scenes where Armand's talking about their relationship that they have and how he knows Lestat. Well, because uh, he, he basically says that despite one vampire killing another being essentially a capital crime in this universe, he understands having known Lestat mm -hmm. why he did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was like he sort of excuses him that way. 
Anytime, like, I think of that, like, even seeing that right now and I think of the theater, I just think of, like, the really horrible, like, tragedy that befell Lestat when he was part of the theater. Josh, I will tell you. <laughs> I will tell you all about this because I want to. Lestat joins the theater because um, Armand finds him and Lestat's just like, well, I'm a vampire. I still want to act and shit. And, um, he, and Armand explains way more of the history of the theater and why it exists and what he's trying to do with it. And then Lestat's human ex-boyfriend comes to one of their shows and recognizes Lestat and is all like, Lestat, you've been missing for years. Oh my God, where have you been? And really, Lestat distances himself from this guy to protect him. Well, he was the guy he ran away with. He ran away with him originally, but yeah. then after he becomes a vampire, he distances himself because he's like, I can't be around you because I'm probably going to kill you. And then he turns him into a vampire because he basically begs him to, and he's just like, we're going to live forever and be together always, and it'll be, we'll be like gay and beautiful and forever. Because like, that be always works out, that always works with out two so bitchy well. queens. Yeah, but then, do you remember what happens? Because like I I remember it's like it's a it's a drug thing. He sort of gets lost in it. And... Well, he gets lost in it, but also becomes super super like obsessed with his violin. Mm. And he he already is a violin player as a human, but in the book he becomes so kind of enraged with bloodlust that anytime he gets like really high on blood, he just like incessantly plays his violin to the point where it drives Armand insane. Mm. And Armand ends up cutting off his hands. So that well, he he's got to be pretty good after like oh, several hundred years of practice. Oh, he's he's very, very good. And Armand literally cuts his hands off wow. because he gets too annoyed by the violin. I don't actually know. He doesn't grow new hands. He, he cannot grow new hands. I think he's too and, young of a vampire. And all of this happens in the Vampire Lestat. This is yeah. why I'm just pointing to how beautiful and wonderful this book is. That yeah. There's so much interesting content in this in this book. It's a totally tragic moment because like this character, when he's human, when he runs away with Lestat, He's obsessed with the violin, and his own father says, if you don't stop playing that violin, I'm going to break your hands. As in, like, you're wasting your time on music. And then Armand chops his hands off! Oh, wait, Josh, aren't you a virtuoso violin player as well? Don't you identify with this? It's so poetic! I do, but can I just say that if perhaps this were not set in a gothic setting, you might find this overly saccharine? (laughs) No! Of course! No! To hell with you! Well, of course, you know what happens next. Once he gets his hands cut off and he can't play the violin anymore, he gets depressed and kills himself. Just As one like, does. Just like Lestat's maker did before him. So Lestat is super fucked up. Lestat has had the most interesting history, and I think the yeah. way in which he overcomes this and the way he laughs at death and all that is just... Because he thinks that it's all very useful. absurd. Because I also... He's like, it can happen to anyone, even immortals. So. I really enjoy the vampire Lestat and the way that it flips the content that you've seen in this Yes, he kind of retells the story a little bit, yeah. but in a different way. So he was actually in the the theater when they all when all the vampires decided to sort of fuck over Louis and and Claudia. It was they actually get taken to the room with Armand, and Armand is speaking with Lestat when they when he gets brought in, and we don't know what's going on in the, in the background. And so in the interview with the vampire, we assume oh Lestat betrayed them again and did that, but in the vampire Lestat, he's actually like, actually no, this is what was going on when all that happened, um, not to exonerate him, but I just really enjoyed, I think it was one of the first, I hadn't read Ender's Game or, or Ender's Shadow, and so I was not used to that kind of... Oh, like two different perspectives. Yeah, the, and, and the, the challenging thing. of perspectives yeah. and saying that you can actually have the same story told from two different viewpoints, mm-hmm. and they can bo- both be sort of mutually 
agreeable but contradictory at the same time. Josh, I'm wondering what you found, what your reaction was when basically Lestat kept coming back. Because there were several times where something would happen and you'd be like, is it Lestat? (laughs) (laughs) Like, so to someone who's never seen this movie, did you find it ridiculous that Lestat essentially, like, comes back, like, four times? I mean, it's sort of set up in the premise of the whole thing. Like, Mm. Lestat's this powerful vampire and, like, you know, like, I, I thought it was actually, what I found ridiculous is that it was so easy for this young girl vampire <laughs> to like outwit him and like feed him dead blood or whatever and 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 thereby kill him so i i found that actually a little harder to believe than the fact that he would just you know find some way to resurrect himself what did what did you think of claudia in general she was delicious delicious she was, she was so good um like just her like kirsten dunst man i didn't know if she could uh first movie it's crazy like she she's so good in this She's so petulant and complex and poised, poised, mature. Uh, like she's just so perfect. I, I never felt like I was watching Hermione Granger. Yeah, no, I never, I never felt that. You truly believe that this is a like seventy-year-old woman what, like in, in a, a child's, child's body. body. Yeah, you totally believe that. Like she just has such a seriousness. When she finds out that she is an immortal and cannot change. And she's storming through the hallway. Oh, yeah, that's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And, and, and demanding to know who did this to mm-hmm. her. I was like, I was afraid of her wrath. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that is a 12-year-old girl. With, girl projecting <laughs> with the ferocity and intensity of a fucking Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm, I was just I was just watching it. I, I When I first saw it, I was like, I was young myself. And I saw it and I was like, this is a really good actress. And even watching it now, I'm just like, this is, this is incredible. Incredible performance. Yeah. She was nominated for a Golden Globe. I'm not surprised. um, Which she didn't get, but she was still... Yeah. It's it's an honor to have been nominated. (laughs) Well, you you watch like Anna Paquin in Piano. Not to, you know, demean Anna Paquin. I think she's great in that movie. Kirsten Dunst is maybe a bit more showy in this movie. It was around the same time, too. Yeah. Um, And I just just felt like there's just so much more nuance and complexity in what, what she has to sort of accomplish and project in this mm-hmm. movie. Interesting that they're both drawn to vampire movies. <laughs> oh, right. Well, she's Anna Paquin is not playing yeah, a vampire was. in the piano, by the way. <laughs> she's not playing a vampire. <laughs> oh, um, let's talk about the very end. What do we think about the very end? Do we think it's do we think it's cheesy or do we think it's funny or like appropriate? I mean, I think it's like appropriately meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's great. Okay, fair enough. I mean, if I think movie, that sums up the whole movie. If if the movie is all about this existential angst of this billionaire vampire stand-in for you know these, if if the movie is all about the existential angst of this you know wealthy immortal vampire man, then the fact that like there is no true answer to his questions or a sort of summation of it at the end is is kind of appropriate. I really feel like they left things up for a sequel that never materialized. Well, yeah, because it's all like the end is almost comical to me because it's just like, guess who? It's yeah. the stat again. Yeah. It, that's not how the book ends. Like the mm. the writer ends up actually leaving town to look for Lestat does he get, so that he can learn. Does more. he get made into a vampire? Eventually, but not in this way. Like basically what happens is he goes to look for Lestat so that he can get more answers and he also wants to become a vampire. And he doesn't find Lestat. He finds Armand instead, who becomes totally obsessed with him. And they become legit boyfriends. 
the whole time he's begging Armand to change him into a vampire and Armand refuses him for like many years and then eventually he does. And then they have like their whole their whole story. So many stories of unrequited love and So so this is one thing that I found always very irritating about this vampire universe. Anne Rice really, really doesn't pay attention to female vampires, like not that much. She writes Claudia, who isn't even alive for that long compared to the others. And there's And who's not a woman. And who's not a woman, yeah. Which which is interesting in its own right that yeah. she's sort of stuck in this prepubescent quote unquote innocence, but she you know, she's clearly not innocent. So there's yeah, there's Claudia who's not a woman. There's Akasha, which is like the queen of the damned, who mm. gets also a bit of a characterization but really she's just portrayed as evil mm-hmm. and the only other female vampire that i even remember is lestat's mother who is not even around for that long oh, either yeah. remember lestat becomes a, like is in love with his mother and turns her because she's dying of consumption or something what a great book yeah That's he, he's, he's really really yeah. in love with his mother and uh, his mother just like is like the luna lovegood of this universe is what i remember her as being because mm-hmm. she's always running off and like hanging out in the dirt and she like buries herself in the sand all the time to go to sleep because she thinks coffins are like not where she's meant to be and like she's she's like the flower child and, and she won't she will like Lestat keeps trying to tie her down and she won't she just keeps running away but Anne Rice doesn't pay that much attention to her female characters they're all like white men and a tiny girl yeah <laughs> white rich men yeah white rich men and a tiny girl whose problems extend to the fact of they're so rich and they're so wealthy they're so and they're bored. so powerful that there's literally no challenge in their lives and so they have to invent problems so it's like what what else could we it's like white privilege the movie or something <laughs> i don't know i feel like there's there's just so much more we could talk about the movie itself because we've talked a lot i feel like we've talked a lot about the books and the story and the content well the question I want to know is, Josh, did you enjoy the whole movie? Uh, well, yes, I, I enjoyed the whole movie. It okay. Was, uh... I find I always get bored towards the end because Louis's antics kind of wear a little thin towards the end. Yeah, and it just, it did lose me a little bit at the end, like you're saying, like, where is this going? What is this? We're, we're sort of addicted to having a meaning or a message or a trite little thing coming out of the movie at the end, and this just sort of, like trailed off into Lestat perpetually coming back unexpectedly <laughs> or expectedly. So I like I, I thought the the establishment of the world and the rules around these vampires and, and Louis becoming a vampire and him struggling with what that implies, his notions of what would quote unquote make him good, that struggling with what would make him as a vampire a good, meaningful um, person or having a meaningful good existence. I thought that was interesting. I don't think the movie answers that question. It, it was it, it sort of wound down a little. So yeah, the problem is that it kind of plays out all of its narrative tricks by the mm-hmm. by the second act. By the yeah. third act, it is just sort of like we don't really know what we're gonna do with this. We just know that we've established that Louis is broody. We've established that Claudia is unhappy. We've established that Lestat is dead. What are we going to do? Well, Lestat's still dead. Claudia is still, you know, unhappy. And and Louis remains broody. And, and it never really kind of is taken to another register. It just it just gets played out all over again in a sort of different well, sequence. I, I actually found that, like, uh, the only real sort of slow part of the movie for me is actually right after Louis leaves Armand. 
Because up until that point, it's very riveting. But that's because, the end of the movie. Well, yes, but there's still like an extra 15 or 20 minutes at that point. Maybe 15 minutes. No, no, no. Because that's, he's, he leaves, unless you're thinking of something else. No, no, he, no, leaves, he Armand leaves Armand and says, I'm sorry, I, I, it's a tempting offer, but I can't, I yeah, can't yeah, take yeah. it. And the movie basically ends because it cuts to the reporter and he says, make me a vampire. Yeah, yeah. And then there's this, no, but then Louis walks around and he like talks about no, the, the Sunrise movie and then he meets Lestat in the house. Like, yeah, he, like, like he, goes no, no, to, he goes back to the oh, the, the, right, after he right. leaves Armand and then he goes there's back to the There's still like a, like a good 15 minutes till yeah. the end. And yeah, I thought sorry. up until that point, it was extremely riveting because you really just see all of these extremely lonely, lonely people sort of bartering with one another for relationship status, as in like, Ooh, like Lestat realizes Louis is really not enjoying the dark gift as much as he thought. So he makes them into a family because he literally th- knows that Louis is a bleeding heart that he'll stay to take care of Claudia. And then that relationship gets nego- renegotiated because Claudia decides to cut her other dad out. And then like Armand comes in and he's just like, cut the kid out completely. Let's you and I start on our own. And it's like, everybody's just trying to shuffle Louis around and renegotiate their their place in the relationship. But really, everybody, all the vampires are just incredibly lonely and trying to figure out who do they want to spend their existence with? Why do they want to spend it with Louis? He's the least fun vampire ever. But why do they all want him so badly? Because he makes them feel? Like, what, so, what is the... Like, because he's trying like, to be Lissette good? Like, Lissette has a terrible time when he's with Louis. Louis is boring. You want to talk about, you know social capital here in Marxist mm-hmm. terms. Mm-hmm. Louis is the kind of prime commodity then, if I understand what yeah, you're saying yeah. here. Everybody and everyone is trying to trade together. in on that and yeah. to sort of circulate him through their sort of economy of relations. Does it mean anything? Well, why do they want it, him? Why do they want him? Is it just because that's the that's the movie? It's about the interview with the vampire with the vampire Louis, you know, that's so that's why they want new Louis, or is there is there something else going on? Because I, I, for one, watching this movie, I was kind of like, I don't care if you're Brad Pitt, I'm getting bored with you. Louis has his appeal, but I would never want to spend like eternal eternity, life with man. Him. I Jeez. would rather hang out with Lestat. Like, yeah, well, I mean, Lestat kind of hits the nail on the head when he's like at the end of the movie when he's like, my God, I had to listen to this for two centuries. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why Louis, if he were so angsty and so broody. And just like decide to like go sunbathing one day. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember if the book addresses whether or not he like has thought about committing suicide. I think he just isn't brave enough to do it or something. Like I don't know, but it really seems like he should because he hates his existence. Okay, we are not advocating that people who don't commit suicide are just simply not brave enough. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about a vampire. <laughs> a vampire, who yes. Hates his life. Yes, I could just. The see other this. vampires do it. Mental health associates just <laughs> breaking down our doors. <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> it's, you, know what it's, you know what I think it is? I think you're throwing us off. I think that's well, what's happening. We always bounce off each other a lot, but then, like, you're here, so it's like we're both pausing and waiting for you to say something, and you're not. And you not. don't, and you're, you're not, not. You're not running with it. Um, for some reason, when I was younger, and I was so obsessed with this movie, I also bought the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I buy the soundtracks the weirdest movies. Ellie Goldenthal. No, it was nominated for It was nominated for an Oscar. So the music, I know, I know the music very well. So I just remember the scenes, yeah. particularly because there's so much crazy violin shit going on in this <laughs> soundtrack. Like there's so much. The music is so, so over the top. So, uh, the that's thing, L.A. Goldenthal's way in which he conducts, though. 
Did he do the music for The Mummy also, or is that Hans Zimmer? I actually don't know who did it, but I know it wasn't Hans Zimmer. It might have been Elliot, but uh, Elliot did like uh, Batman Forever. Oh, he also did excellent. Uh, one of my <laughs> favorite scores of all time, Final Fantasy: The Spirits Within. What? Yeah, we uh, I and he really did. Pay oh, attention oh to the he score also did Alien Three, which is a is great... that the weird French one? No, that's the fourth one. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. you know he did Alien Three, which is a compromise score, but it's a great score. Mm-hmm. It's very handy that when somebody's about to die in the movie, they. Uh, they they make the the, the the pulse come very strongly through the soundtrack. Yeah. With No, it's like legit the sound. heartbeat. Oh the heartbeat. The heartbeat. And then like I liked I liked the way they handled the vampire transformation in this movie, just in terms of like listening to the heartbeat thing. Because mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of um a lot of different versions of vampire lore have different ways of describing like how a vampire is made. And I think that this this is actually the same one that they have in the Buffy universe as well. Somebody is drained to the point of almost death, and then they have to drink the other vampire's blood. Like, that's a very common that's way Dracula. of turning vampires. Yeah. yeah. That was in Dracula too. Uh, yes. oh, oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, a couple of others It's almost transactional. It, it is, yeah. Marxist. Yeah, I know, I keep coming back to that, but, it's, but it is almost transactional. Like, you know, they have to sort of receive back the gift of uh of life from like somebody who is you know endowed yeah. with this i mean like you could also like take a sort of infectious disease perspective on it but mm-hmm. it's like transmitted mm-hmm. from blood-borne well, infection i like the transaction i used to watch the vampire diaries i did really like it at first but then it just got really lame and i thought that their vampire transformation was one of the stupidest things I'd ever seen like in terms of reimagining what the lore was like the vampire transformation in that show was if you happen to die if you happen to have vampire blood in your system at all you became a vampire and people had vampire blood in their system all the friggin' time in this show because it had healing properties so like the characters would be like oop I'm I'm almost about to die let me take a sip of this vampire blood and I'll be all better so at least two or three times in the show, people accidentally become vampires because they happen to die, like less than twenty four hours after they've had some vampire blood. So it's not really planned; it yeah. just happens. Yeah. And I'm like, that is so dumb. Why is that how how the like the the transformation occurs? Like it needs to be a transaction. It needs mm. to be weirdly consensual, but not not it's, entirely. It's like interesting then. Speaking of transactional, that Lestat would refer to it as a dark gift. Yeah. So, in that he's removing it from that kind of transactional mm-hmm. nature by saying it is, it is a, a gift. But you know, it, the irony is, I'm going to give you the gift. Uh, I'm going to give you the choice of the gift that I never had. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm going to give you the choice I never had of the gift that you have no choice in in taking or receiving. Well, I think the choice point for him is I can. I can almost kill you, so your choices are death or vampirism. So it's yeah. not like he's saying that, is it, to a perfectly What's the gift person. at that point? I feel like the gift is just like a different existence. Like that's what he sees it as. Yeah. Even himself as a vampire, he's not really that miserable as a vampire. No, he's he quite happy. exciting. Yeah. Like he's always just but learning new things. And Tom Cruise would be the ideal vampire. Well, I feel like Tom, Tom Cruise is probably a vampire. Like, That's right. I, I have serious <laughs> beliefs in Tom Cruise's immortality at the moment. He's like, what, 56 years old? Doesn't look like he's aged that much since this movie. 
performs all of his own stunts, like in every that, movie he owns he's his in. own his own insurance company. I think that he's just like a stunt, ju- like an adrenaline stunt junkie. He owns his own insurance company yeah. because that's the only way he's able to do that's his true. own he stunts for Mission Impossible movies. movies. Is because no one else will underwrite. You know, Tom Cruise wants to hang from the side of a jet airplane as it takes off. People yeah, are like, nobody will insure him. We are not going to pay for that because if he dies, we cannot afford this movie. And Tom Cruise is like, I want to do this. I will put up my own I insurance like company. I feel like Tom Cruise doesn't even necessarily care about making money or acting or making movies. He just yeah. wants to like hang off of buildings he, well, and get paid. He, he's made it quite clear in interviews with people that, you know, whatever his politics, whatever his religion, whatever... He just wants to make sure that the audience comes to his movies and are entertained. And I think that he succeeds. He, he does a great job I, of that. I am a big Tom Cruise fan. Say what you will care. of anything behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, I don't care on about screen, his screen, like, he is the ultimate movie star. He carries every single movie. Yeah. He puts out, like, a 110%. quality blockbuster, like, every year or two. Yeah. Like, he is... He's immortal. And he takes, <laughs> he takes very profound risks. Like, this movie was a risk. Yeah, and as a you were saying, like, risk, like wait, professional risk. risk. I mean, he's basically playing a gay vampire. Yeah, and and this is like Tom Cruise who will like sue people who intimate that he might actually have had gay relations. Yeah, and he just was able to do this movie and be like, it's vampires. Well, because they're companions. Companions. Uh huh. It doesn't yeah. count. Uh huh. Yeah, and I mean, but it's so it's so homoerotic just in terms of like them all arguing over Louis and all. Like that scene where Louis and Armand almost make out like four times. <laughs> like well, very, they're 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 goodbye. Their goodbye is a makeout session goodbye, that yeah. never and it's I well so for me I really quite enjoyed watching that because it was like the kiss that never actually takes place and oh it's, he's oh it's, he's, it's, he's being cruel to him he's yeah. just like I'm gonna be your companion actually I'm not and, so like then he pulls back at the last second and so the conflation of sex and desire and vampirism and they all sort of get collated into one kind of toxic interesting virulent strand of desire mm-hmm. male it's the dark gift <laughs> the dark gift. well i just feel like every time he says vampire or dark gift if you would put in the word homosexual yeah the movie would still play it, it would be fine it's basically just trading in all of our all of our 1990s fears of homosexuality as this well, kind of corruption. And there's just all the language that comes with, like, comes with it. Like, are you returning to me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> are you coming home? Before you leave me for Before him. You leave me, I want you. Like, it's just, yeah. it's so overly sexual. And, like... And they're not even like, hiding it. No, they're not. Which is, like, how did you miss this when it first came I out? Don't know. You know, like, how, how do film reviewers or how do audiences not be, like... Wow, this is some pretty gay shit. Yeah, no, I don't know why people didn't think that. I even thought it was pretty gay when I was watching it when I was like ten years old. Not that I even knew what that meant. I don't think but I ever I like, quite I picked think up that on it. They might be in love, yeah. <laughs> like little me. <laughs> I would love to see ten-year-old Judy just face pressed against the TV screen watching Interview I, with a Vampire. I would watch this movie in my living room growing up, and like I would be sitting on the floor so I could be closer. Like I, you know. The couch was way too far away, like for how small the TV was. So I would be sitting really close. But uh, it, it was it was the birth of my obsession with with vampires. And then she was like, "Don't sit so close. Don't shut your eyes. Don't shut your eyes." I think this is a good point to talk about uh, that how influential this was for both of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually so watching this movie, I was like, "Oh, this ex- I think this explains my gothic obsession. Like I think this was the sort of." 
um, this planted the seed or infected my brain with this desire for the gothic and vampirism and all these sort of underbellies of, of things. Everything that is the uh, subterranean parts yeah. of desire and architecture and just everything that's the flip side, I think this movie planted in me. Yeah, this movie definitely makes you kind of yearn for this like lush Victorian era of lace and frills and crushed velvet. Like the part at the end where Lestat is like, basically dirty and disgusting and has probably been wearing the same outfit for a hundred years and he puts his hands on the wheel and then like fixes the frills mm -hmm. of his sleeves is like one of my favorite moments it's a, just, like, it's a great shot because of just, the like, I'm, I'm i'm back like i'm still me kind of thing the sort of collapse between those two distinct eras yeah. of the you know laying hands on the steering wheel which is a totem of, of and he lays his of the new world it very carefully like he's yeah. caressing it all well like he's playing then... a piano and yeah. so it's like he's recognizing the sort of technology that he's he's laid a hand on but then the, the they make sure that in the same shot in the same frame he's fixing the frill yeah. on the his dirty sleeve frills the dirty frills still his frills and and the assumption is that because he becomes a punk rock goth star yeah he just he trades in the frills for oh, new frills. One hundred percent. Like he trades in the frills for leather and stuff. Like yeah. in in Queen of the Damned, he is basically wearing BDSM gear yeah. for like the entire movie, and he's all like, "I can do what I want. I'm a rock star." I think by the end of the movie, he's literally just wearing leather pants and nothing else. Oh yeah, for the almost the entire movie, he's just wearing leather pants. Yeah, but he's also wearing like belts and stuff like across his chest, and like mm. he's wearing eyeshadow, and like he looks very very. That movie's terrible. It's it, it's like we were gonna double feature it. We were but, going to, but it was just like I think I think we both agreed that it would just be better for us to just watch this one movie, save spare Josh from watching Queen of the Damned, and just podcast. Yeah, Queen of the Damned. Uh, I I admit I have seen it probably a dozen times. Um, I haven't wow. seen it in a very long time. I think I've seen it twice. I don't know if I made it through the second time. I uh, yeah. I just I just really really loved it because it was like based on the book but it really has very little to do with the queen of the damn novel they they make up lestat's entire origin story they make it worse different they just really simplify it to the point where it's just like but it's not even magnus it's it's, it's marius yeah, it's marius they they make that up completely yeah no the whole point is that lestat has, has to have been abandoned yeah and he had no mentor that is a fundamental movie, aspect of his character yeah and this movie is just like oh actually he totally had a mentor this dude who hangs out with him later when he's a rock star. And I'm like, no, that couldn't, like that, no. Lestat had to have been abandoned because that's why he yeah. literally feels like he had, there's no purpose to any of it. This also brings up, I think, an interesting de-evolution in the quality of the series the, the, and the quality of vampires in general, which gets reflected in, in the you know, descent from Interview the Vampire into Twilight and Vampire Diaries is the transition from the gothic into the goth. Yeah. And it, I think that it sort of has become a pastiche and a parody of itself and that it, they're not actually interested with the themes and the ideas that had animated the gothic about the um, idea of the sort of primacy of the body, the, uh, the sanctity of the, the, the body and the flesh and the spirit and the purity of it, and the way that that would be manifested in spaces and times. 
And it's just become this matter of like, ooh, he's wearing leather pants and he's got a belt around his neck. Well, it's, it's so sexy. Yeah, it's like now, like there are very few universes that even portray vampires in this very like lush Victorian kind of frilly way. Like there's the Anne Rice universe obviously does it, but the only other times I've seen it really done other than in Dracula, yeah. in the Buffyverse, which I'm going to bring yeah. up for the third time now, Angel's backstory. Yeah takes place in this time period also. And you see a little bit of that. I, I would have always wanted to see way more of that era. Just, what it was like to be. In that era, the vampires don't seem like they're really in hiding. Yeah. They seem like they're just doing whatever they want. And then they move on eventually so that they don't get caught. Well, it's a part of the decadence of the culture. That, yeah. that you could be a fop dandy and be equally mistaken for a vampire. Or that vampires yes. could trade in this kind of... What did we think about the fop dandy in the movie? Which one? There's several. Well, there's the one that, like, Lestat, like, goes and makes out with in the bushes or whatever. Yeah. That's... that's he, he's so foppish. Well, the the idea that, that they could both walk off into the bushes together and that there was no alarms raised yeah. at any point was and like, this, this should have been warning flags for everyone involved. Yeah, because that, that guy is also, like, fully wearing makeup. Yeah. And I but that's just the, part and parcel with the, the, the yeah, culture of the, the time. it's the style because he's young and, like, yeah. he needs to look beautiful and... Yeah, and, like, and but the movie also doesn't treat this as a as a parodic element. It's like, no, this is just this is par for the course. Yeah. And I think that the unwillingness for filmmakers these days and for and for uh, vampire content these days to tread on the taboo and to deal with these kind of uh, distinctions and these differences that in a way the vampire meme has become product itself. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about Marxist capitalism. The any time that the vampire is incorporated, it, it is simply as a way of how can we sell this to teenage girls who don't know any better? How can right. how can we trade on their fantasies of like young, youthful beauty living forever? Yeah, and, and eternal is, love. Yeah, and that is the fantasy that people really, really want to sell. And it's, it's become it's, a pop goth song. Yeah, it's getting away from like the creepiness of actual. Putrescence well, and death yeah. and and now and that I think about it, what we do in the shadows is another movie that explores vampirism during this time period. Yeah. Um it starts out that way and because the movie is so amazing, it just like they never change their clothes, like even in the modern era, they're always walking around like that. But if I saw Jemaine Clements walking around dressed like that, I wouldn't bat an eye. Yeah, I would probably think it's totally normal. I would just think <laughs> that is how Jemaine Clements trying to be a vampire would dress. It's so good. That Jemaine Clements. Jemaine. <laughs> just, just saying the name makes just me laugh. Just saying the name, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, no, it's a brilliant movie. It's like you with the crab song from Moana. Yeah. <laughs> Unless anyone has anything to add about uh, Interview the Vampire. I, we are going to be watching a few more vampire movies. This was kind of just like us re-watching this to get into the mood. Um, we're going to do, I think we have like two other podcasts in mind that are going to be vampire themed. Yeah, we're hoping to sort of cover the territory of a vampire. So I guess this one is kind of Marxist. Maybe the other ones might not be. Uh, I don't think Josh will be joining us for those ones, unfortunately. Uh, but we yeah, need we need your medical opinion we need your, on we, everything. We actually need your medical opinion on more. So we're planning on maybe doing a podcast on hunger, and maybe on thirst. Yes. And so that would actually be more relevant huh. to, the, uh, to the discussion. I feel like... Uh, we need you. We need you for those <laughs> ones. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, we're just uh, we're trying to do an overview of the whole vampire lore and legacy in film and culture. Whether we get so there, so stay tuned. So excited to more vampires. Yeah.
Toss, toss. Mm -hmm. Toss, toss.